In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, that was my second time uh, hearing Brenna share today, and I, I, I told the eight o'clockers that if I would have known that uh, Rusty and Brenna would have been so good, I wouldn't have even planned a sermon, because... Uh, but here we are. A few weeks ago, um, a group of us, uh, young adults, uh, I still claim that, I'm, I'm almost aged out, um, but a, a group of us were at coffee hour and there wasn't enough coffee. I mean, there was, but we decided that we were gonna go get another cup of coffee uh, after church. And so we were very highly caffeinated young adults sitting around and sharing stories. And we were gathered around this table at a coffee shop uh, over off Broadway, and the question of our jobs came up. And so we were sharing about what it was that we did for a living and what the best parts were and what the worst parts were. And someone asked me, Josh, what is the best part about being a priest? I, I didn't have to take long because I think my answer is basically always the same, but the best part about being a priest is getting to spend time with you. It's getting to know you. It's getting to be with you at all of the crossroads of life. It's uh, getting to sit with you in my office or at your home or over a dinner table and getting to share stories and know who you truly are beyond the brief interaction that we get to have just outside of here as you're leaving the sanctuary. It's my favorite thing. And the person who had asked me this question already had a sly smile on their face because they were already locked and loaded for their next question, which was, well, then what's the worst part about being a priest? What's the thing that you enjoy the least? I didn't have to think long about that either because my answer has been the same. I've, I've only been a priest for uh, a little over four years, but uh, the truth is I've been in ministry since my early 20s, and so for probably 20 years... My answer about what the worst part about ministry is has been the same. I mean, I don't think I've ever had a second thought about this. It's been the same since the very beginning. I'm stretching this out a little bit because I'm trying to build a cliffhanger. What is it? The worst part, the worst part about being a priest, the thing that I enjoy the least is talking about money. I feel gross. <laughs> When we talk about money, I don't like it. I try to spend most of my day not thinking about money. And I, I've done some kind of internal work trying to figure out why in the world this is so uncomfortable. Uh, for me, I, I don't feel like it is for everyone else. And, and the only conclusion that I've come to at this point in my life is because I've just never had a lot of money. <laughs> so it's, it's weird for me to ask other people to give of something that I know that I don't have a lot of to give. You know, my, my family growing up was very blue collar. My dad was a heavy equipments operator at a power company. Uh, he also worked uh, part-time uh, doing tree removal business. Uh, so half the time he smelled like coal <laughs> and half the time he smelled like pine trees. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom for uh, probably the first 14 or 15 years of my life before going back to work as a medical transcriptionist. By the way, they're here this morning, so you can fact-check these stories with them. So we were a family that didn't want for anything because my family worked very hard, but at the same time we had to think about, like really think about our decisions before we spent our money. And at the same time, my family was also very generous. 
And I can remember as a young child, my parents slipping me a few coins or a dollar to put in the offering plate. And so from a very early age, I understood that even when you don't have a surplus, that there's still, there's still a need to give and to be generous. This followed me all the way to uh, when I went away to college to prepare for ministry. Uh, when I was 19 years old, I ended up at Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida, and I was studying, uh, I was getting a bachelor's of science in religion with a focus on pastoral ministries. Yes, you can do that. And I was there studying, and I had a roommate at the time, Bill, still one of the most beautiful human beings I've ever met. He's wise and compassionate and creative uh, and spontaneous, and Bill and I would sit around and we would talk about what it would be like one day when we were in ministry. And money never factored in. <laughs> The ministries that we were planning would cost millions of dollars, right? But we never even thought about how we would get this money together. But at some point, we started to realize that maybe this wasn't the calling that we were moving towards. And Bill and I had been reading through the book of Acts, and we were inspired by these first Christians who sold everything and then shared the profits so that no one had a surplus, but everyone had enough And they would go out into the public places and they would proclaim the gospel. And Bill and I said, we should do that. (laughs) And so we begin to think about this ministry that we might have where we would buy a van and we would drive from city to city and we would get in parks and we would stand up with our Bibles and we would read to whoever would listen to us and this would be our church. And we would maybe get a couple of donations to buy a hamburger, you know, a real healthy diet, uh, to get to the next town. But this is what church looked like to us. And it might have been naive, but there's still a part of me that thinks, gosh, that would be a beautiful way to live out this calling. So one day we gathered together. Bill and I decided we were going to see if this would actually work. And we went to the grassy mott on campus in the center, just next to the student center. And Bill and I took the Bible, and we began reading out loud to all the people who were, who were passing by. And no one was stopping. <laughs> and so we thought, we need to get higher. Like, actually higher. Like. <laughs> and so we found a park bench, and we stood up on this park bench, and we had the gospel, and we started to read to people as they were passing by, and suddenly people started to stop. It was amazing, and probably easier to do on a Christian college campus, but we were there, and we were reading, and people were stopping, and it was wonderful, and soon we had a crowd of 20, and then 25, and then 30, and then people started to raise their hand, and they started to say, can we read too? <laughs> And they would step up on the park bench, and we were all reading the story of the first Christians together. It was a moment that costed nothing. It was a moment of pure ministry. And the truth is, is that today, I still have as much trouble talking about money. I'm still just as uncomfortable. But I'm not uncomfortable talking about giving. And too often in the church, we confuse the two because giving has to do with so much more than what is in your pocketbook or your bank account. Giving has to do with giving out of your whole person. The truth is is that you have so much to give and the ways that we talk about giving in the church, in all honesty, are boring. (laughs) 
We often talk about 10% as some sort of measure for giving, but the truth is that that is a barrier to most people to give, and it is a limitation to people who can be even more generous. The ways that we talk about giving limit us in church because we have so little imagination beyond our pocketbook and our bank account, and there's more. You are full of gifts that God has given you that can bless your neighbor. So what does biblical giving look like? What does giving and generosity look like in the imagination of God? You have to look no further than our gospel passage today. Jesus is at the height of his ministry. The disciples are following after him. A large crowd has gathered and it is loud. There are people all around him and they are walking towards the city of Jericho and when they finally enter, all of these people are waiting to see what Jesus will do next and what he will say next. And then a voice out of the crowd starts crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. People start to look around they notice that it is Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus is a blind beggar that lives on the streets of Jericho. And the interesting thing is, is that the crowd doesn't just ignore him, they actually tell him to hush. Hey, you're bothering Jesus. <laughs> there is something about ever-present need in front of us. We become desensitized to the need that is around us because we see it every day and we're distracted by our own needs. And maybe on the first day or the first week or the first month or the first year, people would stop by and they would give Bartimaeus something, but it became difficult because he had been there for a long time, so long that the people had started to ignore him. They try to hush him. And I love Bartimaeus because he just begins to shout louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The rest of the crowd just keeps moving, but Jesus stops. And suddenly he is standing still in a crowd of people that are moving forward. And Jesus turns to Bartimaeus. And he says, bring him here. And the crowd finally realizes that Jesus has stopped and that he is actually calling out for Bartimaeus, not walking past, not silencing, but interested. And so they say, take heart, Jesus is calling you close. And Bartimaeus springs up, throws off his coat, anything that would hinder him from getting there faster, and he comes to Jesus, and Jesus asks him this question. What is it that you would have me do for you? If you've ever been hungry, I mean like real hungry, like not knowing where your next meal from hungry is coming from, you're not always thinking of the bigger picture. Bartimaeus could have asked for anything, I need a roof over my head. I need a hotel for just a couple of nights. I need food for today. I need an HEB gift card just to get me through this week. I just need a little bit. Because so often we're afraid of inconveniencing others. But Bartimaeus goes big. And he tells Jesus, 
I need to be healed. I need my sight back because this will change my life. And Jesus does not for a moment hesitate. He looks at Bartimaeus and he says, go. Your faith has made you well. But what's interesting is Bartimaeus does not go. But Bartimaeus turns around and follows Jesus and becomes one of Jesus' followers. A reciprocal relationship of giving. This is what biblical giving looks like. When a person in need asks, we don't pass by, we don't silence. The world around us is in need. And it is an invitation. It's an invitation to come close and to be in relationship with them. And really, if we're going to get down to brass tacks this morning, the thing that I'll tell you, and Erica, feel free to use this as the clip of the sermon. I mentioned your name. God does not need your money. I'll just say it again for you in case you didn't hear me. God does not need your money. The church does. There's lights to turn on and there's people to pay and there's facilities to take care of so that there's places that we can have weddings and funerals and baptisms and we can gather for worship and fellowship and so we can do outreach and ministry. Like money's necessary for that. But God already owns everything. And the idea that we give just a portion back to God and put it on this table is just missing the point. All of this is on loan to us. You know who else doesn't need your money? Jesus. (laughs) Jesus already operates out of abundance. And when people come to Jesus in need, Jesus does not hesitate to say yes, to give out of that abundance, to bless and to change people's lives. This is what generosity looks like. So this season of generosity, we do have an invitation. And it is not to fund a budget, but it is whether we will be the hands and feet of Jesus or not. Because the feet of Jesus stop and listen to those who are in need. The feet of Jesus come close and ask questions. The feet of Jesus interact and say, what can I do for you? And the hands of Jesus are open. And out of that abundance comes all the healing that the world needs. Beginning here in this community and this neighborhood and all of the people you will ever meet. Will we be the hands and feet of Jesus? I hope that this community's answer will be yes. Amen.